That's um, why we're looking at Exodus, because we've been working our way through the book, and this is where we're up to this morning. That being said, next week, or the next five weeks, are not going to be from Exodus. Um, that's not just because I'm about to go on holidays, nor am I going on holidays for five weeks. Um, but in the lead up to the 500 years of the of the Reformation, we're going to look at the uh, the five um, doctrines or beliefs that were the primary driver of the Reformation. Um, Samuel is going to be covering the first two over the next two weeks while I'm away, um, but we will be returning and finishing off Exodus after that as well. So let's open up in prayer as we uh, look at God's word. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for what you have done in providing a way by which we can call upon you as our Father. Not through any effort or achievements of our own, but purely upon the work and merits of Jesus Christ, who paid the price in full for our sin, and through faith in him we have the very righteousness of Christ, and we will one day see you face to face. Lord, we give you thanks for the wonderful gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, we thank you that we have your word, that we can uh, read from it and to, to learn about who you are and what you have done. And Lord, we pray as we study your word this morning uh, that we might not just learn facts and figures and information, but Lord, that we might see something more of the wonder of the God whom we serve, that we might be overwhelmed with the grace of what you have done to provide for our salvation. And Lord, that we might long to walk in faithful obedience and by the enabling of your spirit. So Lord, for the very purpose that you, through your spirit, you gave this passage and you intended it to be used, we pray that you, you might cause it to have that effect in our lives this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in any other church, I would never use this, this particular illustration because demographically it doesn't work across a broad spectrum. But by not by intention, but just by how things have happened to work out, we tend to have a rather younger demographic. So if this illustration doesn't make sense, I apologise that I that I chose to use it. Now, I know people are a bit reluctant about crowd participation, but this serves hopefully, and I noticed some visitors looking a little bit squeamish, thinking, oh, no, I don't know this guy. What crazy stuff is he going to do? Not crazy. Okay? If it's, if it's too crazy, just don't do it. Hands up. If in terms of your computer use, you use a Windows computer, please put your hands up. Now keep them up for a moment and only keep them up if when you're accessing the internet on that computer, if you use Microsoft Internet Explorer or Microsoft Edge. There you go. We had lots of hands up. Then as soon as I said that, boom, they're gone. You can, you can put your hands down now. I don't need to embarrass you for using old technologies and things that don't work very well. Because the reality is, it's there, it serves a sort of a purpose, but the reality is, it's what you use to download something better, isn't it? It's what comes with the computer, you get it and you use it to download Chrome, Firefox or something else. Now that might seem like the stupidest illustration you use at the beginning of a sermon. And how has that got anything to do with the Ten Commandments? As we sort of think about that, the Ten Commandments, they were good. They, they served a particular purpose, but there was something lacking and insufficient in them that kept you longing for something better and something greater and looking forward to something greater. Now this passage is probably 
one of the most familiar passages in the Old Testament. And I can guarantee you a number of you will probably be able to quote quite a lot of it. But if to ask around amongst Christians, what was the original context in which it was given, or what is the application, does it apply to us today as Christians, you'll get all sorts of very different answers. People might ask questions about, in the Old Testament, were they saved somehow by keeping this set of standards, by keeping a set of rules? Has it got anything to do with us today, or is it all obsolete? This is our last in Exodus until we take a little break for five weeks and we look at some of the five key beliefs of the Reformation. The first one Samuel's looking at next week is the principle of Scripture alone. And one of the principles of the Reformation is that the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. And we'll be doing that this morning as we look at what does the, the broader context of Scripture say with regards to the Ten Commandments. To give you a bit of an idea of where we're headed, first we're going to look at what is the context? In what context have these commandments been given? What is the content? What do they actually say? What was their original purpose and application to those who were who were there and who first heard it? And how do we interpret and apply these things today? Now I'm sure anyone who's been here for any length of time has heard me, Samuel, Owen, David, if you've been here for a really, really long time, have you been in David's time, Pippa? I don't know when David finished. You'd hear this principle, context matters. You need to, if you're going to understand something, you need to understand the context in which it is found. You can't just pluck a Bible verse out or a passage of scripture and expect us to read it on its own and come to a correct understanding of it. It's like when you're Doing that would be just like when you're gathered in a group of people and you're the strange person who comes in late in that middle of the conversation and you hear something that's just really, really weird and you don't get it. It makes sense to everyone else in the conversation because they know why the conversation got to that point in time. But you can't just pull things out without a context. This famous passage is no exception to that rule. When we put things into context, the Ten Commandments... Were they written as a set of standards, things you needed to keep in order to be brought into the community of God? Or were they written as things described as how to live as people who have already been redeemed? If we remember back to Exodus 2, we saw the people there in slavery in Egypt and their cries went out before God and God heard their cries and he remembered his covenant. Because back in the covenant with Abraham, back in Genesis chapter 15, not only did he make all the promises to him and his descendants, he made the promise that, yes, you will go into a foreign land for 400 years, and yes, I will deliver you out of that land to be my people. So these commands come to a people who are part of that covenant community, and now that they've been taken out of Egyptian slavery, they have been a saved and a redeemed people. So they are commandments to outlay how to live as a redeemed people. They're not commands how to become a redeemed people or how to remain a redeemed people, but how to live in light of who they are. That's the very foundation that God sets before laying out these commands. He reminds them, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now there's three key points that he makes there. I am the Lord. That word, his divine name, Yahweh. 
is representative of his whole character, his whole being, his whole will, his whole nature. He's even said that his work in bringing a people out of Egypt was so that they would know that he is the Lord, that he is, and they would know something of his character. And this Lord who is their God. And who is this God? What is he like? He is the one who has brought them out of Egypt. Egypt was the, was the world's superpower at the time. The one who was far beyond the greatest world power at that time and also by bringing them out with complete and utter ease is far superior and above all the multiple gods that the Egyptians had. Because during that time, the culture would say that a nation which is thriving and doing well is doing it because their gods were superior. And God has shown superiority not only over Egypt as a nation, but also over against their so-called gods. So that's the groundwork. He says, I am your God. I'm the one who's entered into covenant with you. I'm the one who's redeemed you. I'm the one who's demonstrated who's worthy of all honour and praise. And I'm the one who has brought you out of slavery. They need to be reminded that. We've even seen very early days when they got out of Egypt, they're like, oh, we'd be so much better off if we went back to Egypt. The, the verses in the Bible tell us they were treated ruthlessly as slaves. They were working seven days a week. Sometimes we associate the concept of, of rules and commands as being slavery. And God's saying, I brought you out of slavery. And given that we are created in the image of God, God's rules, his commands are in line with his will. And they should actually be the natural and best fit for who we were created to be. So it's a powerful reminder for them who their God is and what he has done. But it's also a reminder to us as to where do these verses find their context. They were written to a people who were already redeemed and chosen and called to himself. So there's your context. Now looking at the content in verses 13 to 17. Now from a distance it all looks pretty straightforward and some of them are pretty straightforward. They just get one sentence because it's plain and clear what they mean. Some not always so clear to make sense. The first four commands are often described in how we relate to God and the final six with how to relate to one another or as Jesus put it, loving God and loving loving your neighbour. The first is pretty clear cut in light of what he's already said of who he is and what he has done saying, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, he's not just saying that I'm the only true God, that is a true statement, but that's not what's being specifically said here. Go over to Isaiah 43 to 45, he makes that statement along. I am the Lord your God, there is no other God apart from me. But what he is saying here is he's recognising that there are other claimant gods. And in light of the fact that they'd come out of Egypt, everyone who's alive when these commands were given had grown up in Egypt who had a multiple number of gods. And so he's reminding them, you are to have one God and one God alone. Something which um, set them apart from the nations in a very big way. Because he was their God, who'd entered into covenant with them, who'd redeemed them, they are to take no other God. Sadly, as you look through the Old Testament, how frequently did the people of God forget even just this very first command and go after the gods of the surrounding nations? 
Second, which provides a few more details. You shall not make yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything that's in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Throughout a lot of the history of the Israelites, they find themselves surrounded by different nations with all of their idols and all of their gods. As they've grown up in Egypt, they would have been surrounded by them. But they've been reminded, I'm the Lord who has entered into covenant with you, who has brought you out of Egypt, who has redeemed you to be my own treasured possession, as we saw last week. They've seen his work in Egypt, how he has complete supremacy and control over the things of creation. Let's think about it, what an idol is. An idol is something you make out of created things. It says, do not go after the things made out of created things. And you think, that's clear cut. They've seen the mighty power of God. Why would they look anywhere else? Yet before they even leave Mount Sinai, you flip over and you get to Exodus chapter 32, what do they do? They build themselves a golden calf. Moses has been up there too long. And even Aaron, who's been a strong player in this leading of people out of Egypt and onwards, even he says, this is your God. Bow down and worship it. To show something of the foolishness of idolatry, in Isaiah 44, he uses this example. He says, think of it this way. You've got a tree, you chop it down. Half of that wood you use to cook your dim sins. It doesn't say dim sins in the Bible, don't look it up. Cook your your food. And the other half you make an idol down and worship it. And it's just an inanimate object. It's It's just wood, it does nothing. It's stupid. And just as a little side note, when it talks about um, visiting the iniquity on the fathers to the children of third and fourth generation, because there have been some people who've looked at those verses and talked about things they call generational curses, as though if you get involved in certain things, that some evil spirits are somehow going to affect you and your, your children and their children's children. But that's not what this passage teaches. And this is the passage they, they say is the basis for it. This doesn't say anything about demonic things afflicting the third and fourth generation it says i your god will visit the iniquities of your fathers nor is it even talking about um, things in that nature what it's talking about in its context is your sin going after other idols affects others you are in a faith community what you do and particularly in the the unit of the family will affect those who come after you in the same way, by following in obedience, we'll have a good flow on to those who come after you as well. The third command, you shall not take the Lord your God's name in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What does it mean to take the Lord's name in vain? Is it only if I say Jesus or God, using it as a swear word? It would certainly include that. But as we've mentioned earlier, The name of someone in a biblical sense was representative of the entire person's character, their being, their nature. So it basically would mean to say, do not speak about Yahweh, the Lord, our God, 
in a way is unbefitting or is opposed to his nature or is dishonouring towards him. Haven't got time to go into details here, but no, this isn't what Jesus referred to as the unforgivable sin in the Gospels. If you want to talk about that later, more than happy um, to talk and look at those passages. Now, the longest one that's actually addressed is the Sabbath. And it's also the most controversial one in terms of what do we do with that one today because it's the only thing in these Ten Commandments that's not explicitly commanded to Christians in the New Testament. But we'll get to that later in addressing that point. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labour and do your work, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant or female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now remember the context for these people. These people have been in slavery in Egypt. They never had a single day off. This is wonderful good news for them. They're saying you've got six days of work, then there's one day in which you'll be set apart, which is holy, for to remember your God who has brought you out of Egypt. But like a number of the Ten Commandments, we often think of these things coming into effect in Exodus chapter 20. This has been referred back to in, in Exodus chapter 16 when, the, when God provided the manna. He provided them for them in six days. On the sixth day, they were told to get twice the amount because on the seventh day that, that they would rest, they wouldn't have to go out and get it. But we're told here, this goes right back to creation. In God's creation, he created for six days, then on the seventh day, he rested. The full scope of things, it says that this is for you, your kids, your servants, your livestock. But it's worth noting that when it says God rested on the seventh day of creation, it doesn't mean God did nothing. The scriptures tell us that the world and everything in it, God sustains daily. He rested from that work of creating, but he continued to sustain his creation. He was not inactive. But because there's no explicit rules about what you can and can't do, there are some stated in other parts of the Old Testament, you can imagine people start to make up their own mind. And particularly in Jesus' days, we see people rebuking him all the time for doing things that they thought were not fitting to do on this day, like healing somebody. And throughout the Old Testament, often the people are rebuked for failing to remember to observe the Sabbath. So if the first four address relationships with God and the last six now towards people, you have that picture of Jesus summarising the law by love the Lord your God and love your neighbour as yourself. We talked about honouring your heavenly Father, which was the first command. The Israelites are spoken of back in Exodus chapter 4 as being um, the firstborn, firstborn son God describes them as. So now that they've seen how that father-son relationship works, now it talks about bringing that model into the family. Honouring your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord is giving you. Okay? So look to, to the, the nature of God to see, fathers, how you are to, to raise your children. To look to see what God calls his people to do in response to him, how children are to honour their mother and father. No, that was never meant to mean that do whatever mum and dad says. Particularly if mum and dad say to do something that is not honouring to God, it doesn't, you don't all of a sudden just cross out the first to, 
to serve the Lord God only. But famously in Ephesians 6 it says it's the first commandment to come with a promise that your days may be long in the land. Now remember this is being written to a community of people. This is not an individual command that if you individually don't honour your mother and father that you individually won't live long in the land. But corporately if this is something that's not happening uh, if you're walking in obedience on a corporate basis then you will live long in the land. When you get to... Command 6, 7 and 8, they're pretty, one sentence, knock them out because they're pretty plain and simple. You shall not murder. You don't need too much explanation though, that one, do you? It doesn't need to be said, it doesn't say you shall not kill. Otherwise God would be guilty of violating this one himself. Like we've already seen back in Egypt, the, the complete destruction of the firstborn of every household and all of the livestock. You've seen the Egyptian armies drown in the Red Sea on the crossing. We're seeing God helping the Israelites fight against the Amalekites. The term that's used here is never used in the context of war, nor is it ever used in the context of punishment for crime. It's always spoken of killing someone who is not an enemy of the people. And like many of the Ten Commands, it's not the first time it comes into the Bible as though God was okay with murder up until this point in time. I suppose Cain and Abel is your very first example in the scriptures. Equally blunt and straight to the point is the seventh. You shall not commit adultery. I remember when I was going to a church in New South Wales that we're about to uh, visit when we go on holidays, and they decided they were going to go through the Ten Commandments for their children's talks. And I was always wondering, what are they going to do when they get to this one? How do you do that as your little kids talk with all the kiddies up the front? And I'll never forget the illustration. And I have no idea how I'd do it better in a kid's talk. They said, you know how, how sometimes you might be walking home from school and you, you, you play, play with a little dog. He's got his head poking through the window. You give him a pat and you give him a little cuddle. And then you go home and your dog smells that other dog and, the, and that dog's really, and your dog's sad. <laughs> then they said, now you go home and ask mum and dad what that's all about. Um, I have no, no idea how you should do that as a children's talk, but I don't know if that's the right way to do it. That wasn't in my notes, it just came to my head then. Probably a good reason why it wasn't in the notes. <laughs> but while it's clearly straightforward, Jesus expanded it, as he did a number of the commands. Because ultimately, as Jesus says, it's not... The external things that defile you, these things are what comes out of your heart. The heart is the issue. Like he says, if you even just lust after a woman, that you have committed adultery. Although the interesting application in the Old Testament is that the only times it tends to refer to adultery seems to be if the woman was either betrothed or married. And only if the woman was the one who was betrothed or married. But not only that, the consequences were rather interesting too. If it happened... You had to marry that person. Even if you already had one wife, you'd just start collecting. The Eighth Command, pretty straightforward, you shall not steal. Don't take anything that's not yours. Which, I suppose, in a way is connected loosely to what's been said before with regards to adultery. Also looks forward to the Tenth Command, talking about coveting, wanting something else. The Ninth, you shall not bear false witness. You could put it in the broad sense of do not speak lies, do not speak untruth. And that's the way, that's certainly a biblical truth. 
But when you turn over to chapters 23, particularly in verses 1 and 2 and 6 and 7, it appears the main context that this is being used is in a legal sense, to do not bear false witness. Because think about justice and law in their days. They didn't have high-tech crime things. They didn't have surveillance cameras. It's not to say people will bust someone doing something, pull out their iPhone and take a photo of it. The very thing they had to weigh evidence on was people's witness. Therefore, your witness bear a lot of weight. And therefore, it had to be accurate. So if something required the death sentence, it was required that three witnesses had to give account of that. And not only that, there was good reason not to lie about it. Because Old Testament law says, if you've been in an accusation against someone and you've lied, you've made it up, then the person who's made up the false accusation, they bear the consequences of that particular action. So you're not going to go making it up. And lastly, again equally straightforward, do not covet your neighbour's house, shall not covet your neighbour's wife, his male servant, female servant, his ox, donkey or anything else that is your neighbour's. This is the only command that's specifically directed at the heart rather than a particular action. Because coveting is a desire to want something that that isn't yours. While he talks about some of the things they're probably most likely inclined towards, house, property, woman, servants, animals, but he rounds it all out by saying, or anything. Why do you think he addresses this one, particularly being something of the heart? Because coveting is longing for something that you haven't got. And deep down, by complaining that you haven't got it, you're actually questioning something about the goodness of God by withholding something that you think he should have given to you. It's showing a dissatisfaction with what what you have rather than giving thanks for God for all that you do have. Now, as you look at these very familiar commandments, you think, oh, it's all pretty straightforward. They should just think, oh, that's not too hard. Just tick a few boxes. Everything's going to be easy. But when you look at their description, how they respond to it, there's nothing vague. If you look at verses 18 to 21, Now the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. The people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Now they've seen the almighty power of their God. They've seen him doing things in Egypt. They've seen the miraculous ways in which they've brought him through the Red Sea. They know this is a mighty, awesome and powerful God. And now that he's outlaid what it means to live in relationship with him and they see that standard, they think, that's too far, we, we can't do this. How are we supposed to live in the presence of a mighty God and his standards are so high he's going to wipe us out? And so they call upon Moses and say, you, you be our mediator, you speak to us from God, we can't stand in the presence of God himself. Now Moses has already had been appointed to be a mediator for the people. Back in the, the incident of the burning bush, back in chapters 3 and 4. And he responds to the people, particularly with words that you see throughout the Bible, when people come into an encounter with God or an angel from God, the first words are, do not fear. Because that's our natural response. We know by our nature that we cannot stand before a perfect and holy God because we know how far we fall short. But then Moses explains the three purposes of the commands that have been given. To reveal sin, to restrain sin, 
and to live for God's glory. Firstly, with regards to revealing sin, Moses said, do not fear because God has come to test you. This language of testing we've seen back in chapter 15, the waters at Marah, and also in chapter 16 when they were told to just collect enough manna for the day's work and on the sixth day only to collect double amount so you don't go out and get things on, on, the, on the Sabbath day. Each of those things were things which God gave to test them. Would they be obedient to the Lord their God? He said, these have been given to test you. But as they test you, as we even consider our own selves up against these ten things, and that's not the entirety of God's law, we think, can't do it. If I was to hand around a survey form, and visitors, don't worry, I'm not going to do this, ask you tick boxes of which ones you, even in the last week, have failed to do, you're going to be scared about how many boxes you've ticked. It shows us, it reveals our sin. It shows us that if we are going to live in a relationship with God, we need something other than ourselves because we can't do it. But secondly, it also seeks to restrain sin. He says, so that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Now, I imagine if you were there, you saw the thunder, the smoke, the trumpets, and all this stuff, the mountain shaking, you're going to remember it, aren't you? You're going to think, oh, I'm not going to mess with this God. And that part of that purpose was that they might fear him, have a sense of his awe and his holiness and his otherness, that that might somehow restrain them or keep them from going into sin. But thirdly, because they are commands given to a redeemed people, and because God's commands are a reflection of his nature and his character and how we are to live in relationship with him, they are a display of his character when his people walk faithfully in obedience. Remember, we saw that the nature of the Israelites were chosen to be a redeemed people, a light to the nations. And when they walk in God's laws, which reveal his nature and his character, they do something that points people to the nature and character of God. So that's what it was for them. What about for us? Now, we don't have time for a lengthy talk about all the connection between the law and the gospel and how they all fit together. But do the Ten Commandments have any application to us as Christians or are they obsolete? How do we reconcile two different ideas presented in the New Testament? When Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. And then Paul says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Are they complete? Have they been abolished? Have they been ended? Or are they not? When Jesus says he has come to fulfill the law, he's not saying I've just come to carry it out, but he's saying that he is the goal. He is the completion of everything that the law anticipated. He is the final culmination of the law. He is fulfill it, bring it to its final complete end. So in that sense, the two don't contradict one another. Because what the law did, we saw it, it reveals our sin. It shows us that we need a righteousness outside other than ourselves because we cannot attain it. We see in the Old Testament law the ongoing sacrifices that they had to keep on doing as a way of making themselves and restoring themselves in their relationship with God. But they had to be done over and over again because they were not sufficient for once for all. Yet Jesus, when he came, he says, the Son of Man hasn't come to be served, but to serve and lay down his life as a ransom for many. 
Hebrews speaks about his, his sacrifices, sacrifice once for all for sin. So the law by its nature shows our sin and points us to our need and also the provision of Jesus Christ who has dealt with the penalty of our sin by taking a death on our behalf. Hebrews tells us the blood of bull and goats cannot take away sin, but Jesus' blood has done once for all. So when Paul says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, it's because by faith in Christ we receive the very righteousness of Christ, the very fullness of everything we need to be able to stand before God in confidence on that last day. And because the full, complete means of God's righteousness has come, there's no reason to go back to the things that pointed to that. So what's the role of the law in the Ten Commandments today? Paul says in Romans, we're not under the law but under grace. So does that mean we pick up our Bible, do a big tour around about the two-thirds mark, chuck this end out and hold on to this end? No. When Paul wrote to Timothy saying, all scripture is inspired and is useful for teaching, for working, for correcting, training in righteousness, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What he was referring to as scripture then was the Old Testament. And just before that he says, they are able to make you wise for salvation. So we're not going to split apart, and certainly I'm not going to spend this, all this time preaching through the book of Exodus if I think it's a waste of time. Now the Bible doesn't break up the law into these distinctions, just in the same sense the Bible doesn't use the word trinity, but it is a good word to explain what the Bible does teach. That the law could be broken up into being civil, ceremonial laws, and moral laws. Civil meaning that God had entered into a covenant with a particular one nation, and he gave them laws how they are to conduct themselves as a nation. But now in the the coming of Christ and the gospel going out to all nations, being the people of God is not because of your specific tie to one nation, but rather because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And in that sense, the the civil um, laws have come to their conclusion. Secondly, the ceremonial laws, your sacrifices, your, your rituals, all of which pointed to Jesus Christ. Like when you read through Hebrews, they, they describe them as being the shadows and the types of the things that were to come, but Jesus is the reality who has now come. So because now that the reality and the fullness has come that they represented, there's no need to go back to those either. However, with regards to the moral law, as in what God teaches about moral things, ethical things, if they are a reflection of his very character and his very nature, then he's not going to change his mind between the Old Testament and New Testament, is he? It's not as though he's going to be opposed to something there and think, ah, oh, murder, it's not so bad these days. That was back when, when I was having a bad hair day. God's moral character is, a, is, a, is an expression of who he is, of his will and his character. So they will never be unchanging his moral laws. And as we look through the Ten Commandments, the majority of them are in that sense. How we relate to God, certainly completely unchanging. How we relate to our, to our fellow people around us, unchanging. The only one, as I said, which is never reaffirmed in the New Testament is, is the Sabbath. The New Testament, however, does speak of the first day of the week, that being the Sunday, as being the Lord's Day. 
But even more so than the Old Testament where it didn't have too many details, very little is given as to what is entailed on this Lord's Day. By its very nature, it is a sign that it is a day to be set aside for focused attention upon our Lord. And throughout history, Christians, we're good at making up rules and little regulations and stuff, aren't we? And we all know people who have got different ideas of what you can do on a Sunday, whether or not you can watch TV, whether you can go to work, whether you can play sport or any of those things. The Bible isn't that particular on it. But it is particular, this idea that we should take a day a week where we more intensively than the rest of the week, not that we shouldn't for the rest of the week, the whole week we should be living to honour God, to take set aside time for the corporate and the private worship of our God. But in terms of what we can and can't do, we'd probably do well to remember Paul's own words to the Colossians. Let no one pass but judgment on you with regards to food and drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Remember what the Sabbath originally was? Began with creation. It also pointed to a future rest when the people came into the rest of the promised land. But it even pointed even further beyond that. The writer of the Hebrews reminds us in this way, saying if Joshua had given them rest, Joshua was the one who led them into the promised land, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, therefore, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us strive, therefore, to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. When we come to faith in Christ, we are completely dependent upon his works, his merits, and what he has done. We, we cease from our works and we take rest in the works that he has done. Remember what Jesus says. He says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Because let's face it, even just trying to keep the Ten Commandments, you think there's going to be rest? It's going to drive us insane. We're going to just get frustrated realising we can't do it. And if you think you're the only one, no one in this room can do it. I can't do it. No one who has ever walked this earth other than Jesus Christ can do it. One of the very natures of the, the role of the law was to show us our desperate need for righteousness that comes from outside of us. Galatians speaks of the law in this way, as being like a guardian. That was a term that was used to describe the person who was a servant in a household whose role was to escort the children to their place of education, to schooling, and back. It says that's what the purpose of the law was. The law itself was to point you to something else, to point you to Christ who was the fulfilment of that law. To enter into that rest. But there is also a future rest that's being pictured also. When we will completely rest, we will will completely come to a point where we are no longer struggling with our desires for the fleshly nature and against sin. When we enter into that everlasting rest, we will no longer struggle with sin, sickness, death, worshipping around the throne of God forever. So as God's character is unchanged, his moral will and his laws that are of moral nature are unchanged. They are not a standard by which we are made right with God, nor are they a standard by which we are kept right with God. Both Old and New Testament, salvation comes by grace through faith. 
not by works. But as it's also put in, in Ephesians, but he has given us good works to do beforehand. They are the sign of his gracious work in our life. But these, like the commands of the New Testament, are telling us what it looks like, what it means to walk in a manner worthy of who we are as a redeemed people. But I want you to just think back. What was Israel's response? They'd seen something of the grandeur and almighty awesomeness of our God. They'd heard his standards and what he required and they panicked. They trembled and they called upon Moses, you be our mediator, we can't stand before God. And as we think about the Ten Commandments or if we think about any of God's standards, we naturally feel, I can't do it, I don't measure up. God, I can't stand before you in my own efforts because I know I will be utterly consumed. Yet the Bible speaks of Jesus as being the final and the greater mediator who not only has dealt decisively with the consequences of our sin as we deserved a death, he died that death on our behalf. Not only so that the thing that was destroying our relationship with God could be dealt with, he has given us his promised Holy Spirit dwelling within us and he has given us his righteousness. And you know what sort of mediator have you got? You've got one which the scripture says who even on a day-by-day basis is interceding for us at the Father's side. And who said back in John chapter 6, and on that last day I will raise them up to be with me where I am. So as we look upon God and see his awesomeness and we see our desperate need for a righteousness that's not our own, it causes us to give thanks that he has sent Jesus Christ that we have a perfect mediator, that we have the perfect fulfilment of the law, that we have one who is on our side, who is, who's dealt with the, the problem of sin and who is interceding for us daily and who is waiting to welcome us into his presence if we have trusted in him and in his gracious offer of salvation. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word as a reminder of who you are, but also to remind us of how, of who we are and how far we fall short of, of your perfect and glorious standards. Oh Lord, we thank you for your, your gracious dealing with us, even as the people who, who have called upon you for our salvation, we are uh, constantly frustrated with their, with their own failing. While we might look back and see the experience of the Israelites in the Old Testament and often shake our heads. Uh, if we can take an honest examination of our lives, um, often we'll be confronted by how frequently we wander off into things that should seem so clear and plain and so um, dishonouring in your sight. God, forgive us from times when we have wandered from living in a way which is worthy of the gospel. Help us to have a real sense of your awesomeness, of your perfect holiness that it might uh, deter us as, as our fleshly nature entices us towards uh, things that are not honouring to you. Uh, but Lord, we give you ultimate thanks that you have dealt with completely uh, the consequences for our sin, that you bore the price of death on the person of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And we thank you that... Um, you haven't left us on our own, but you have sent your spirit. You are interceding for us. And one day you'll take us to be with you forever, where we will struggle no longer with sin, 
sickness, death, or anything, but nothing more than sing praises around your throne. And we give you thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen.